This morning, we're jumping back into our series on the book of Revelation, which we've entitled, The King is Coming. And it's been a few weeks, and so hopefully, uh, by way of introduction, we'll kind of grease the skid a little. Uh, we're about halfway through the opening section, which is a series of seven letters from King Jesus himself to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And as we come to the fourth of these letters, the middle letter in the series, the letter to the church in Thyatira, I think the timing is kind of apropos for us. Coming off the heels of last weekend's Faith and Culture Conference, and if you're interested, we have audio recordings of it that are available upon request. You can contact the front office. But our topic for the conference was deconstruction and deconversion, kind of hot topics in our day today. And we asked, how do we make sense of the numerous stories we hear, either in the media or the stories we know of in our own lives? could be from family members and friends, former church members, to even leaders in the global Christian community who once professed faith in Christ, but are now renouncing that faith, sometimes very publicly and vocally. How do we make sense of that? Well, we considered how important it is for us as the church to enter the deconstruction conversation, not as debaters, but as listeners and learners first. To be a non-anxious presence that welcomes doubts and tough questions of any kind, and to walk with people through those issues as long as it takes. Because when we move towards others with this posture of listening rather than arguing, what we might learn is that for many, the process of deconstruction is birthed more out of deep personal pain than mere intellectual hang-ups. And far too often, the place where that pain was inflicted was the church. Whether through sexual or spiritual abuse, racial or social discrimination, the minimizing, dismissing, or covering up of the same, maybe even in the name of grace and forgiveness, the straw that often breaks the camel's back isn't so much that these things could ever happen in a church, but that the church is willing to tolerate it. Dear friend, if this describes your experience, first of all, let me say thank you for being here. Only you and the Lord know what it takes for you to keep grappling with faith in the wake of what you suffered. And know that this is a place where your grappling is welcome. However messy it gets, however long it takes, wherever it takes us. Church should be a place where you are welcome to ask hard questions. But secondly, my hope this morning is that God's word will speak to you right where you are. Because what we'll discover as we unpack this letter is a church that was far too tolerant of evil in its midst. A tolerance that threatened not only its witness to the world outside, but its purity within. 
And no one, hear this, no one has a bigger problem with that kind of tolerance than Jesus. Jesus, who sees all and knows all, from whose penetrating gaze no evil or injustice goes unaccounted for. This Jesus calls his church to purity, a purity that's far more than just correct dogma or traditional social values, but a passionate commitment to his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and to the righteousness, justice, and truth it brings. That's the Jesus we see in the book of Revelation. So let's see what King Jesus has to say to this church in Thyatira, as well as to us here in the DMV. And we'll be reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. You can find that in your pew Bible or your Bible of choice. Hear now the reading of God's inerrant word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her in, onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to this church. Just as we sang a moment ago, let the presence of the risen Lord fill our hearts and minds with his word, his thoughts, his mind. Teach us and change us. Purify your church to be the people that you called us to be in this generation and in the next until you come again. We ask it all for your sake. Amen. Amen. So here's where we're going. Here's this letter in a nutshell. Jesus, 
calls his church to kingdom purity. Jesus calls his church to kingdom purity. And to unpack that, there are three things that we see from this letter. First, we see a deadly pathogen. A deadly pathogen. Now, there's not a whole lot we know about Thyatira relative to the other six cities. A fact which is actually telling in and of itself. You see, Thyatira was the least significant and influential of the seven cities, both because of its geography and also its culture. And if you remember this graphic from several weeks ago, this gives you kind of a lay of the land. Thyatira is nestled kind of inland and a little bit away, caught between two valleys, not a very strategic military location. And its main contribution to Greco-Roman society seems to have been its local industries, things like textiles, fabrics, pottery, metalworks. And so, for instance, in Acts 16, Luke mentions, quote, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And this Lydia gave ear to Paul's preaching at Philippi in Macedonia. Likewise, at the bookends of this letter, Jesus employs artisanal imagery like burnished bronze, rod of iron, earthen pots, which would have spoken right to the everyday stuff of Thyatiran life and commerce. Yet, from Jesus' opening commendation of the church in Thyatira, it's clear that her modest stature in society had no bearing on her spiritual vitality. In fact, when we compare the Thyatiran church to, say, the church in Ephesus, not only were they continuing in good works of love, faith, service, and endurance, but Jesus, in verse 19, tells us that their latter works even exceeded the first. So the picture we get here is of a church that's generally vibrant and healthy, engaged in the community, and like the church in Pergamum, remaining faithful in the face of persecution. But they have this against them. Verse 20, they tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing them to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And their tolerance of this threat was so grave that it calls forth some of the most scathing and lengthy of Jesus' condemnations in these seven letters. What do we make of this situation? How is it that the Thyatiran church could be doing so well, yet find themselves in such imminent danger spiritually? Why these stern warnings and condemnations from the Lord? Well, right off the bat, I think this text confronts us with a kind of reality check. What do I mean by that? Well, for many of us in the modern Western church especially, our tendency is to view spirituality in mainly discrete or computational terms. In other words, we'd like to think that if we hold the right doctrines, we do the right things, avoid the wrong, then the outcome should be a successful spiritual life. We have a hard time imagining that our personal spirituality is somehow mysteriously part of a broader narrative one that plays out in the context of community and is shaped by the stories of others. 
And when it comes to the problem of evil, we tend to mainly understand it in terms of personal sins, thus overlooking some of the more nuanced ways the scriptures speak of evil. In his book, People of the Lie, psychiatrist Scott Peck draws from decades of clinical research on malignant narcissism, arguing that while all human beings are afflicted with what he, even himself as a Christian, would call fallenness or sin, there's nevertheless a subset of his patient population for whom the utter incapacity for truthfulness, empathy, moral conscience could only be described as evil. Of course, in the ultimate sense, the whole counsel of God teaches us that all sin is evil. Why? Because all sin, however big or small, is against an infinitely good God. But I think Peck's observation, it actually touches on an important distinction that the scriptures make as well, which is that along with our ongoing struggles with sin and fallenness, every now and then, something of a different kind, evil, enters the picture on top of that. Recently, my daughter has been getting into the Star Wars franchise, and that's much to my delight. And most of you know that Star Wars, with all of its spiritual themes, uh, it provides great opportunity for some healthy cultural critique in the household. And so the other week we were uh, watching something and we're just kind of commenting about how different the older movies, you know, episodes one through six, how different those are from most of the more recent material, especially the TV series. Not just because of the special effects, but for me, what really sticks out is how, how much more relatable and believable the character development is, both on the individual level, but then also just in the way people are portrayed in general, at least the humanoid ones. I can't really speak for how relatable a Gungan or a Wookiee is. But when you watch the old movies, it really jumps out because essentially all you need to know about the characters in the old movies is who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. In fact, the whole storyline is hinged on whether Luke will be successful in turning Darth Vader into a good guy. But then when you watch a series like Andor, for example, where, sure, you have, you have the rebels on the good side, and you also have the Empire, who are still the bad guys. Yet within both, you have a host of characters who actually live very messy and complex lives, who are capable of both good and bad, who are, as it were, sinners. And yet, as every faithful Star Wars nerd like myself would know, even as that plays out, in, even as that conflict happens, there's another layer as well, isn't there? Because over all of that, there's a shadow cast by who? The Sith. And who are the Sith? Those who are so ensconced by the dark side of the Force that they can only be described as pure evil. They are incapable of good, save for the rare exception of Anakin Skywalker and Ben Solo. And if that was a spoiler for you, then I'm sorry. But that's not, not entirely my problem. You see, Scripture also speaks of sin, and Scripture also speaks of evil. 
And while time doesn't permit us to expand on this much further, a good starting point, if you'd like to go a little deeper on this point, is simply the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of which tell the story of a Savior who came to save sinners, yet was opposed at every step by a certain kind of sinner. The kind he describes in Matthew 23 as evil, who, quote, shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for they neither enter themselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Matthew 23, 13. Perhaps some of you have encountered this kind of evil, maybe even in a church. You know the manipulation, the deception, the all-out determination to control narratives that what you experienced, while on one level, sin that needs to be forgiven, was also more. It was evil. And it's to such a serious threat that Jesus alerts the Thyatiran believers. Nothing less than a deadly pathogen has entered the body. So who is this Jezebel? And what's so deadly about her? Well, almost certainly her real name was not Jezebel. But whatever her name, Jesus refers to this person symbolically as such in order to illustrate the severity of the threat, similar to his mention of Balaam in the previous letter. Historically, Jezebel was the Sidonian princess that we read of in 1 Kings chapter 16 and on, who ended up marrying King Ahab of the northern tribes, the couple then going on to lead Israel into the worst Baal worship and idolatry in Israel's history and opposing Elijah all throughout his ministry, seeking his head at every turn. And in this same way, the Thyatiran Jezebel had somehow wormed her way into the church, establishing a prophetic ministry by which she was leading some of them into sin from the inside. Now to be clear, the danger she poses has little to do with the fact that she's a woman. The New Testament provides ample evidence of women in the apostolic era who exercised prophetic gifts in the church. Let's make that clear. The issue isn't that she was a prophetess. It's that she was a self-appointed prophetess. Neither is the nature of Jezebel's seduction primarily sexual in nature. Although the term sexual immorality would be the most literal translation of the Greek word in verses 20 and 21, the way John uses it throughout Revelation, especially in the passages dealing with Babylon, is to refer to immorality in general, not just sexual immorality. In that way, John is following in the Old Testament prophetic tradition of likening spiritual unfaithfulness to sexual infidelity, as does our Lord himself in verse 22. So what then is the threat? Well, most likely, this teaching to eat food sacrificed to idols, is referring to the kind of situation we saw at Pergamum a few weeks ago, where Christians in skilled professions would be part of trade guilds, many of which would hold banquets where they would be served food that was dedicated to certain local patron deities. And because in that culture, like many cultures in that part of the world even today, table fellowship was essential for professional success, believers would be faced with a dilemma. Should I eat this food and essentially commit idolatry? 
Or am I willing to risk my career by abstaining? And to make matters worse, these events were also known to include acts of debauchery after the meal. Something which alone should have made it a non-discussion. Yet, somehow, Jezebel was able to convince some of the Thyatiran believers that, hey, they can participate in these acts of immorality and idolatry while still maintaining their faith. In verse 24, we see this cryptic term, the deep things of Satan, which could refer to one of two things, neither which has anything to do with Halloween. The first possibility is that Jezebel herself taught the, quote, deep things of Satan, by which she would have encouraged believers to engage in sinful behavior as perhaps the best or only way to truly, quote, know one's enemy, all the while reassuring them that their faith would remain unsullied. More likely, though, her teaching was akin to that of the contemporary pagan mystery cults, or even the later Gnostic movement, which held that certain secret insider knowledge of certain deep things was the highest spiritual pursuit, so much so that what you do with your body is practically inconsequential. Either way, by calling this teaching the deep things of Satan, Jesus is actually unmasking the deception for what it really is, a deadly pathogen threatening the life and health of his body, the church. So then what's the antidote? We've looked at a deadly pathogen, but secondly, there's the discipline of purity. The discipline of purity. Now you can probably hear from my voice as I hear from some of you coughing that I'm getting over a little something. I uh, picked it up earlier in the week. I think it's on its way out. Uh, wasn't quite able to get the notes out when we were singing, but it, it sounds a lot worse than it is. Um, yet. Every cold season, the same thing happens, and I've noticed this over time. I'll pick up what is some kind of viral infection, and then it eventually degrades into just kind of all-out post-nasal drip for a couple weeks, and sorry if that's TMI, but that's kind of my story, and uh, I've learned to live with it. But earlier on, when I was younger, maybe be because I was in denial or just out of youthful confidence, I used to think that, when these colds happened, I can just you know, pop some antibiotics, which I now know is worthless for viral infections, take some NyQuil, maybe some cough drops, and just go about my life as is, and I'll be fine. You know, as if just through the sheer power of positive thinking, you know, the virus will just wake up and say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm leaving. And obviously, that didn't work out for me, but I had to learn that over time. And so when Sure enough, I felt the tickle in the throat this time and the congestion build in the sinuses. I knew that I was in for the long haul, that my path to healing was gonna take the discipline of rest. I was gonna to have to unplug, discipline myself to rest and heal. God's cure for the church's impurity is discipline. It doesn't come easy. But that discipline, it's actually a gracious discipline. It's a discipline of grace. First, it's gracious discipline for Jezebel and her followers. Now, we're not told exactly how, but we know from verse 21 that Jezebel was confronted about her false teaching. Yet she refused to repent. She hardened her heart. Even still, 
as he's carrying out his discipline of Jezebel in the following verse, Jesus continues to offer the possibility of repentance and mercy for her followers. Did you notice that? He even specifies the works they should repent of as her works. She's held responsible for their impurity. But secondly, God's purifying discipline is gracious discipline for us, his church. Did you catch how Jesus describes himself in verse 18? He introduces himself as the Son of God, which is the only time this title title appears in all of Revelation. He goes on to restate John's own description of him from chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Again, any Thyatiran metal worker would have made the connection. To have feet like burnished bronze meant not only stability and strength, but absolute purity. What's more, those flaming eyes that should burn in judgment at the first sight of immorality and idolatry, what do they do instead? Verse 23, they search mind and heart, literally kidneys and heart, which signify the emotions and the intellect, respectively. In other words, Christ's purpose in disciplining his people is not to destroy them, but to restore them in truth. And that's what the Thyatiran believers needed most. You see, while sexual sin is unambiguous, eating food sacrificed to idols was actually debatable at that time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul even clarifies that since idols don't even exist, in the end, all food is just food. However, he recognizes that what's at stake is not the purity of food, per se, but the heart and conscience of the one who either eats or abstains. And for the church in Thyatira, likewise, the truth of the matter was that for them, to eat food sacrificed to idols, especially in some attempt to outwit God and others, was immoral. And so in turning the lights on for them, Jesus is calling them in gracious discipline to be honest with themselves to own the hard truth about what it might cost to follow him. For these Thyatirian believers, the cost of discipleship meant loss of livelihood, reputation, status. What about for us? Obviously, we face a pretty different set of circumstances today, don't we? Here in America, there's no emperor cult that demands our sole allegiance upon threat of death although some might feel like we're headed that way. Neither do most of us encounter the kinds of ethical dilemmas we see play out in Revelation 2, at least not with as much on the line. Nonetheless, beloved, the core question remains, what are the deadly pathogens we've been tolerating in our own body? How have we accommodated sin or evil in our own lives? Maybe assuming we'll be fine so long as our theology is sound. But before moving on to our final point, I want to briefly suggest three possible areas to consider. Three cultural idolatries that we might be prone to tolerate in our day, all of which are connected. First, 
the idolatry of radical individualism. Radical individualism. And by radical, I mean more than just the kind of rugged individualism we associate with Hooverian America. It's the kind of individualism that prizes one's personal freedom as the most sacred and untouchable right. But when we consider the call of Christian discipleship, the call to follow a crucified Savior, who of all people deserve to enjoy and demand absolute autonomy, yet who not only subjected to the will of his Father, but also emptied himself of his divine rights to become servant to his creatures, to think about the absurdity of it, yet the grace of it. How does that square with the ethos of radical individualism? What might it look like, friend, for me to repent of idolatrous, idolatrous radical individualism and to discipline myself in the direction of a more Christ-like, self-emptying, others orientation? Well, a second area would be the idolatry of power and success. And we're pretty familiar with this one here in the DMV, aren't we? How might we as American Christians have imbibed the false religion of successism, the lie that our worth, perhaps even our faithfulness, is measured by earthly achievement and dominance, by coming out on top, by looking out for self? Has our tolerance of this lie led us to conflate human power and success, whether political, professional, or otherwise, with God's favor and blessing on our lives? If so, dear friend, I invite you to spend some time meditating on the Beatitudes, which Elder Mark read earlier in the service. Ask God the Spirit to realign your values with his own, those of his kingdom, which is very much an upside-down kingdom in the eyes of this world, to make his priorities your own and to move out into the world accordingly. But then finally, related to the first two, would be the idolatry of homophily. Homophily, along with its darker cousin, xenophobia. And this is one that we feel very much in the culture as well. Dear friend, invite the Son of God to search your mind and heart and ask yourself truthfully, are there any forms of othering that you tolerate in your life? If you're honest before the Lord and in the quiet of your soul, are you committed to only prioritizing and seeking out those who are already like yourself, even to the point of willfully avoiding those who are different from you? To whom do you need to repent for treating them as less than, simply because they're different than? Maybe it'll just call for starting with a greeting. When you see someone, to not avoid them, but to acknowledge their dignity and to do so with a holy greeting as the scriptures command us. Meditate this week on James chapters 1 and 2. Look at the call there for us to, for us to pure and undefiled religion before God, which consists of moving in compassion towards those who are different from us, 
even those who are more needy than us, to resist the pull of partiality that our culture encroaches upon us, and to stand against that grain, to let this be a house where homophily is never spoken of. These are just three suggestions that I'm hoping we can take home to meditate on and uh, in a little while we'll be able to even bounce off of one another during Sunday school. Yet thanks be to God, even in the way he disciplines us, Jesus' yoke is easy. Look at what he says in verse 24. I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you already have. In other words, the work I call you to do, it's not some wearisome treasure hunt for some deep things out there. No, it's simply holding fast my promises. One of the top five books that have been most impactful in my life is J. Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism, which uh, actually this year is celebrating its 100th anniversary with a brand new edition that came out uh, not long ago. And if you're not familiar with it, uh, Machen wrote this as his impassioned plea to his denomination, uh, which he was watching as it cascaded into theological liberalism and what he and uh, other theologians had come to call anti-supernaturalism. Uh, say that five times fast. And what he was pleading for chapter after chapter is at least some honesty on the part of his theological opponents to recognize that when you take away things like the inspiration of the Bible or the virgin birth or the historicity of Christ's resurrection, you're not actually improving upon Christianity, but you're actually creating a, an entirely new religion. And to at least be honest about that. And all of this led to the final chapter on the church where he spells out the implications for real people in the pews, people like you and me, that when you strip Christianity, the historic faith passed down from the apostles to us of all of the supernatural, of all of the historical, then what results is a church that is no longer a church, a church that is a hollow shell of itself, a church that's a place of anxiety, and weariness because it's trapped in the endless cycle of trying to keep up with the culture. And so he asks this in the final paragraph. Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? If there be such a place, then that is the house of God and that the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. Beloved, it's such a place that Jesus calls us to be and that he promises us at the end of this letter. And so last, we'll close with this very brief point, the divine promise. There's a divine promise in this letter. It's twofold. We see it in verses 26 and 27. Now these words might have rung familiar to you when we read them earlier. That's because they're from Psalm 2, which we recited as our call to worship. Except there's a twist and you might have caught it. You see, whereas in Psalm 2, it's the Father giving authority over the nations to the Son, here, it's the Son who promises that same authority to who? To us. What grace. What amazing kindness. This is his promise to us. 
And it's only possible for sinners like you and me if Christ has made himself ours through faith, if we have been united to him in his death and resurrection as we saw vividly portrayed in the sacrament of baptism not long ago and as we're about to celebrate again at the table. It's this union with Christ which he promises next. In verse 28, I will give him the morning star. What is this morning star? It's the star that Balaam envisioned in Numbers 24, 17, which God promised would rise up out of Jacob to defeat his enemies. It's that same star that you see in Revelation 22 all the way at, at, the, end of this, at, at the end of this book. That unlike the so-called morning stars of the Roman Imperium who grasped at immortality by etching their images on coins and artifacts, this bright morning star dwells in true immortality and light where he rules over all nations until the day he brings us home to reign with him forever. This is the one promised to us. He promises us himself. And that's exactly what we celebrate both at the font and at the table. Jesus is ours because he has made us his.